Welcome to the Book Lovers Podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. We're obsessed with books and pop culture, and we know you are too. I'm Joseph Henderson, the media specialist. And I'm Jess Herzog, the director of adult services. We're back! We're back! Yay! And we're talking about a book I almost couldn't read, How to Sell a Haunted House by Grady Hendrix. The Zillow meets Megan horror story of a battling brother and sister who inherit the probably haunted house of their parents after they perish in a bizarre car accident. When Pupkin, the family's most cherished puppet, fuck, when Pupkin, the family's most cherished puppet, makes an appearance, Sister Louise thinks it's a mistake, but Brother Mark knows it's a sign of far worse. We're talking Pupkin, Spider. And my unfortunate childhood visit to the Ringling Museum on this episode, and we're joined by our coworker Derek. Let's get started. Hi, Derek. Hey, Jess. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be awkward since this is our first time doing it like this, but it's going to be super fun. So, Derek, you have worked here at the library for how long? March will be 17 years. Stop. I know. I know. Veteran. It turns out when we built the building, they just found you in the basement. We're like, well, Derek's here. (laughs) I came with it. Yeah. Resting in a little pod. Yep. Just like gritty. Mm. Yeah. What? <laughs> Gritty sleeps in a pod? Is that part no, of the mythology? No, but like the lore is that he came out oh. of the underneath the Flyers uh, the ice. stadium. Yeah. <laughs> it was in okay. a cave under the ice. Anyway, we're getting off track. What do you do here at the library, Derek? I am the director of advancement for My the library. Goodness. And so I work a lot with our friends group, um, help with fundraising, uh, strategic planning, Fun stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Library of military campaigns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or marketing instead of military, maybe. Mm, you okay. Know. Yeah, yeah. So what I was just thinking advancing <laughs> down the battlefield. I don't know why. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is our Gettysburg. Encroaching on France. Oh, boy. Slowly. Bonjour. That's what you're doing, Derek. We're encouraging the minds of Spartanburg County. Perfect. Yeah. That doesn't sound go. threatening at nope, all. Nope, not at all. Great. That's fine. So anyway, now that we've gotten completely off track already once here, um, Derek, you are here in part because Carmen has moved on to greener pastures, but we're also, Joseph and I were like, who can we get to come on the podcast and guest host with us? Mm-hmm. And a certain book has just come out and you are a fan of a certain author. So it seemed to make sense. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with Grady Hendrix as a writer and his books. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you prepared? That was a wind up. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Okay. Huh? Y'all, we're really going to have to dumb this down. Okay. Yeah. I know this is a book podcast, but you know, I'm more, uh, uh, Derek, why topics. do you like Grady? Why do I like Grady? Yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know me or, you know, haven't worked closely with me over the past few years, I'm a big horror fan mm-hmm. and it's a big part of my life. Uh, just, I consume all things horror books, movies, you name it. And I've been that way ever since I was a little kid. So video games, right? 
Video games too. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, video games. Um, yeah, those occupy a lot of my time. So, Derek, how did you? What was your introduction to Grady Hendrix books? Okay, so if I remember this correctly, um, we used to do polishing a pick on our Instagram. Yes. Oh it, my God, I haven't painted my nails in ages either. Maybe we should bring them I back. I know. <laughs> it's where Jess would paint her nails as a particular shade of color and it would usually coordinate with the book that we yes, picked yeah <laughs> and one of the books that we picked was called horror store by grady hendrix and i was like what is this book about and it's essentially about just a haunted ikea you yeah know? <laughs> <laughs> there's ghost hunters that show up uh to this ikea and try to yeah capture a proof of ghosts or whatever um and i read it it was goofy and fun and i kind of like that i like like horror comedy stuff, especially in movies. Um, you know, you like to scream and laugh. Yes. I think if you yeah. merge those two together, it's a good time. So, For sure. Um, and I think that's what Grady Hendrix does really well in all of his books. He merges, well, at least the ones I've read, and he merges um, horror and comedy really well. Um, horror Story did that, and then I started researching what other books he has. Um, my Best Friend's Exorcism caught my attention because it was set in Charleston, and I thought that was interesting. Right. Uh, Grady Hendrix is a um, South Carolina native. He grew up, I think, in the Isle of Palms, Charleston area. And so um, at least three of his books are based in that area. Mm -hmm. And local interests, you know, I grew up going to Charleston as well. And so just um, reading about different spots that he references in the books I thought was interesting. And plus it's horror. So I was like, well, this is a win-win. So there was that familiarity there, too, yeah. with it being set in South Carolina. Joseph, you've read... Grady Hendrix before, right? Yeah, several of his books. And actually, I the first of his that I checked out was his nonfiction book, uh, which is called Paperbacks from Hell. Mm -hmm. And um, it's essentially just a, a sort of hilariously I illustrated um, volume about the paperback horror boom in the like 70s and 80s. Um, and when I say hilariously il illustrated, I mean... He reproduces uh, all the covers oh, geez. Mm -hmm. in in the book, and so it's sort of organized. Uh, it's kind of organized by theme or or topic. So you know, you have your monstrous dolls section. You have like evil babies. It, it's all it's all there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was yeah, that was sort of where I I started, and I am. Um, I'm a little suspicious of uh, horror comedy in general as a as an approach to horror, but I too checked out my best friend's Exorcism, and it had enough um, it had enough of an edge to it to like keep me reading, and yeah. I really enjoyed it a lot. Why are you suspicious of it? Um, I just don't think it's usually done very well. Uh. And sometimes, um, I don't know, I have a hard time with comedy in general. No kidding. Sometimes comedy <laughs> is just, comedy materials are not funny to me. They're just annoying. Yeah, I think that's always a danger <laughs> oh, with comedy. Because, is the issue. <laughs> yeah, well, and humor, especially when it's written, you, you lose so much in terms of tone, right? And yeah. it's not the same with something like romance or historical fiction or whatever. When we look at it as a genre of reading, 
it's got to, it has to hit just right or else it falls completely flat. Yeah. And we all have different senses of humor, of course. So if the humor doesn't sit exactly right, that you can read it off the page, infer the tone and it's funny to you, it destroys the book. One thing I'll say too about my experience reading My Best Friend's Exorcism and maybe one of the reasons why it worked for me is because I listened to it on audiobook and the reader Which was really brings good. it all back, yeah. Yeah. And then when we get to I don't know, about three quarters of the way through and the, everything is going crazy and you know, the demonic possession is real and all this stuff. We've got different voices happening. It's you know, <laughs> Yeah. I was hooked. I yeah. was like, yeah, let's go. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. And I mean, horror is one of those places where you can really, like, as an audiobook reader, I think, act on top of just reading, oh, yeah. the, reading the story because you have the opportunity to do those voices like, like Pupkin in this book, you know, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but that's an obvious place where you can do that in the demonic possession, the ghosts, all of that kind of stuff. Those all have voices and you can really go wild with them. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of Reader's Advisory, I feel like horror and comedy, I mean, I don't feel like it. I know that they are part of this same reading group of like right. accessing your emotions in a safe space. Joseph, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think um, I think that one of the one of the trademarks of the horror genre, whether we're talking about video games or whether we're talking about movies or or books um, is you know, we're dealing with a genre that traffics in tension, really high tension uh, situations and storylines um, where we don't know what's going to happen next. And the suspension of of that development of the plot is where a lot of that emotional pull comes from. You know, it's where the a lot of the fear comes from. But one of the ways that you can break that tension up um, is by throwing in jokes and um adding in you know moments of moments of laughter to kind of release some of the some of the high tension and divert some of those strong feelings in another direction um so so you know it makes sense that it makes sense that they would link up together and that um you know writers like Grady Hendrix would weave them together in a the particular way that they do for sure and i think that too being able to really balance them is a good way to get people who don't normally read horror to kind of like dip their toe in because for me that was kind of how stephen graham jones got me last yeah. year yeah. or a couple of years ago was because i knew that his stuff was funny Right. And that made it feel a little bit safer for mm -hmm. me as opposed to just being dire all the time, which is what I feel like in my head is what Stephen King is. And I'm not going to personally jump right to Stephen King uh, like misery. Mm. <laughs> I'm not going to jump straight to that, but I can ease in with something that's a little bit more lighthearted in a way. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. There's not a ton of comedy in the Stephen King I've read. It's pretty bleak. Yeah. 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 Usually. It's quite, yeah. It seems like it's quite intensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it's, you know, it's the, it's the roller coaster ride, right? You're, you're sort of tracking on the lower level at a certain point 
And then various things occur in the plot, and you're just clicking up, and then it's a question of when the drops are going to happen. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and then I vomit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is this something you would recommend, uh, the book we were discussing today, would you recommend to someone who wants, say they came up to the desk and were like, I don't I haven't really read horror before, but I kind of want to start. Is this something you would recommend to them? I think this is in that area, definitely. Yeah. I think Grady um, is a really accessible author, especially if this is the voice that he has in his other books. Um, what threw me about this book, of course, which both of you know, um, is the, the puppet aspect and the doll aspect. Mm-hmm. And so I would want to make sure that the patron was comfortable with that before yeah. giving them the book for sure. Well, the title's definitely a little misleading. It yeah. is. I've it seen, sounds yeah. like it's Zillow with ghosts. Yeah. Right. And I've seen a lot of people on the internet talk about the same thing when they yes. had just finished it. A lot of people are finishing it now because it came out, what, last <laughs> week? About week two, weeks ago. two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that, that makes sense when people will be pushing about it now. But a lot of them say the same thing. The title's so misleading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that's a good point. Um, it's a good intro to horror and what I like too about Grady Hendrix especially for people who are even just like reluctant readers in general it's so fast-paced yeah he drops you right into the universe and it takes off like a bullet he doesn't waste much time right I'd say he he wasted not wasted but he took his time building um the momentum in this one yes more than Mm -hmm. he did in the previous ones I've read of his but I agree um it's like he took his time more yeah yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I I don't know, it's kind of talking about the talking about the readers advisory desk and and sort of working with working with patrons to recommend uh, uh, or put a particular you know work of horror fiction in their hands. Um, I find that those kind of exchanges cuz they often get passed to me as the department's like I'm resident, guilty of that, yeah. <laughs> uh, resident horror reader. Um uh is it's usually a more extended conversation about things like what are you what kinds of horror are you looking for do you actually want a horror comedy mm-hmm. you know book or you know is there anything that's off limits are you you know do you not want something that's super gory are you looking for something that's more creepy you know there yeah. are so many different ways that you yeah. can qualify um the story uh, and sort of qualify like the appeals for for the book. You know, I have my, I have a handful of of writers that I always recommend. Grady Hendrix is one of them. Um, but I I always like to get a sense of what people are looking for first too, because they may be tired of a certain trope, or they may be extremely creeped out by one thing, but then they're really into other stuff, you know, like no, no creepy puppets, but uh, I'm not afraid of vampires or demons, you know, something like that. That Yeah. Yeah. Bring it all. I'm not scared of anything. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty curious just to see. I mean, that's the, I don't know for me. I've, I've read enough of it, seen enough of it. I just want to see where it goes. Like, where are we? Where's this thing going to end up? You know, how mm-hmm. crazy can it get? Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime I'm sitting with people who read horror, I just feel like I don't know how your brains are capable of doing it because I'm just, I guess I'm just such a scaredy cat. I don't know. Yeah. I'm a total wimp when it comes down to it. Although neither of you went to a circus museum when you were six. No. I didn't. That no, experience. No, no. Yeah. So that no, thank you. maybe. 
I feel like that was like a core memory that formed for me and mm-hmm. kept me in a certain place and mindset. Deeply. Yeah. Horrifying. Sure. <laughs> so creepy. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I like reading like, you know, the journey of it. I like, you know, hearing what the situation is and how are the characters going to overcome this? Because it always seems yeah. like just impossible, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, and sometimes it is, Yeah. you know? I want to hear more about the puppet, though. The puppet museum. Mm. Circus museum. Well, I feel like it starts with... So this is this is kind of unique because you two are both horror readers. You're mm. both horror fans. I am not. Yeah. I, I have read Stephen Graham Jones, and I have enjoyed the material that he's written for sure. I do not seek out horror in any way. I cannot watch it for the most part. It makes me very uncomfortable. Um, and it's just not really a thing. And as you mentioned a little bit ago, the title of this book makes you feel like you're encountering a certain thing. Uh It's going to be HGTV Reno with ghosts. (laughs) Like that's what I was thinking in my mindset. I didn't really know that much about it. And there wasn't a lot of information about the book pre-pub. Like we didn't hear really big plot points about the novel before it came out. So then last week I came to the desk and Joseph Joseph was like I, trying to usher me along on reading the book because I needed to read it for today's recording. And he said, did you get to the part about the extreme puppet collective? And I think, what did you say <laughs> about the look in my eyes? It was like you'd never seen something that as close to fear as that in my face. Yeah. 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 The the life drained out of you a little bit. Yeah. I think I got You got a little gray on me. Even paler than I normally am. Um, Because I really puppets, puppets make me extremely uncomfortable. I can handle Muppets fine. I love the Muppets, but there is a very specific type of personality to the Muppets that, you know, it's never going to go into like Muppet try to kill human. You know, yeah. Whereas with puppets in general, it it can get weird and creepy very quickly. And I remember even as a kid watching Mister Rogers' Neighborhood when they go to the land of make believe, being really like disconcerted by the puppets. <laughs> um, King Friday was okay, but like Lady Elaine Fairchild, horrifying. Absolutely, she's creepy. She's creepy, For right? Sure. Yeah. And I a bunch of the puppets there were creepy, and so. When I was six, my parents and I went down to Florida to visit my grandparents, and my parents thought it would be a swell idea to take me to the Circus Museum in Sarasota, like the Ringling Museum, uh-huh. and it was like a Tuesday or something, so it wasn't very busy, and it was us alone in a room with all these marionettes and puppets and dolls, and I just, mm. I remember feeling like, you know, like wide angle camera shots where they they pan up and it feels like the walls are starting to like cave in on you almost. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what I remember it feeling like as a child. Nothing was happening. My parents were right there, but it just felt so overwhelmingly creepy. And then we went to Disney World and went on the It's a Small World ride and there are all those dolls mm-hmm. there and mm-hmm. I just like yeah. kind of lost it a little bit. And yeah. <laughs> Had 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 enough. Couldn't handle it. Did you know that you were scared of dolls like before you went to this museum or? I think that was like really what did it. Okay. Was just the this little six year old me in this giant room. And I mean, the walls were very, very high. I think they were higher than they are in here. And in here, these are like 12 foot walls. Uh I would say a 12 foot ceiling. 
I think it was bigger than that, although I may be misremembering it because I was six. I was a little shorter than I am now. Um, but this is a core memory, though. This is oh, a core yeah, memory. Like yeah, for, for sure. This is a really like locked in my brain, always felt this way, never been able to like to shake it. Always, this is probably part of why I don't like Halloween. Could be. Right? That's probably Could a big be. part of the holiday, the discomfort of it. Mm. Clowns are not my thing. I was about to ask. It's I was, all I have like, a list in my head. I was yeah. going to ask you about clowns. No clowns. No, not not into it. Okay. Dolls? Creepy just, dolls? Just like porcelain dolls. Like, um, what are the, what's the brand that people collect? Mal- Madame Alexander dolls, stuff like that. No. No not dolls. Not here for it. No, I see a doll on Antiques Roadshow and I'll change the channel. Okay. Because I just, I'm not. No marionettes. But obviously, you'll make an exception for Muppets. The Muppets, and yes. And American Girl dolls. Absolutely, yeah. Now, I had an American Girl doll growing up. Okay. And that was fine, but I think it was because... With both of them, there is such past to them that's already been developed. Like with yeah. the Muppets. You mm. got the Muppet show. You've got all the movies, Sesame Street, everything like that. I have a question. Yeah. Who was your American Girl doll? We, you were not a Samantha. I was not a Samantha. Okay. I was a Felicity because she was a horse girl just like I am. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and I think that was part of it too. Like Felicity, 1776. She had a horse named Penny. Like it was colonial Virginia, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, Makes sense. That's right. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah, a lot of, does. yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> but there's a lot of that lore there for those, yeah. those creatures um, and those characters. Whereas when you have a marionette that's just hanging from the ceiling, or like what what Mark was working on with the Extreme Puppet Collective in the book, yes. um, when there is no backstory to really anchor those characters, that is to me in my head where they can go very easily awry mm-hmm. because there's nothing that kind of locks them in place in terms of storytelling. Yeah, Pupkin is a great example. So it lets your mind fill in the gaps, and your mind goes it does. dark. It dark. sounds like yes, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was going to ask, you know, if the moment when they're in the bathroom and all the puppets come in and uh-huh. start to like start mm-hmm. to attack Mark as she's jumping out the window. It's like, see, to me, that was hysterical. Like, yeah, seeing that, that really in my funny. head, mm-hmm. like I could see that playing out on like a screen. And yeah. Making me laugh. I did. Yeah. I will say I did start to envision some of the puppets as like stuffed animals. And then it got yeah. funny. Yeah. Because <laughs> it yeah. was like, oh, like these little like eight inch tall things. I would get clowns and I was little clowns were creepy. Clowns are um, creepy, dude. And I don't know if it was because I saw the movie It like mm-hmm. at a young age oh, or if it was before. There's a core memory for you. Yeah, but I don't know. I just always, clowns always were threatening to me. Yeah. Yeah. They're creepy. Well, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think if we if we dig into it a little bit, there's there's a clear distinction between like the Muppets where you've got like the articulated mouth and I'm like the sort of. about to be psychoanalyzed here. And <laughs> like the, so- you know, they're, they look soft. Yes. Like they look soft. They look welcoming. They look like toys yeah. that have kind of come to life right. or whatever. For sure. But then when we're talking about marionettes, when we're talking about, uh, what's her name? Lady Elaine. Lady Elaine right? Fairchild. Um, Even the scene in Chicago, the movie Chicago mm-hmm. with um, Richard Gere and Renee Zellweger's on her lap. And it's, yeah, it's part of the courtroom scene and he plays her as a marionette. Right disturbed me like that made me mm. very uncomfortable wow. well yeah. i was just i was just gonna say is something about i feel like there's something about that like flat like lifeless the lifeless face that then somehow comes to life there's something about that that's creepy and just it's un it's unnatural it's uncanny it's whatever yeah. right 
Um, but then the marionette aspect of, I don't know, uh, something that's non-moving, something non-living that then like can becomes take on, animate. it yeah. becomes animate, right? And the strings and everything like What's that. What's the scientific word for that f- type of fear? Isn't there a word for it? Jessophobia. Fear of... Fear of inanimate objects? Dolls. That, I think mm. that's what I mean, it it's is. not all inanimate oh. objects. I'm not afraid oh. of a paint can. Yeah. It's called pediophobia. Pediophobia. Yeah. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, sure. It's a fear of um, dolls or just um, uh, lifeless objects, just mm-hmm. inanimate objects. Yeah. yeah no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is that I can make a puppet mm-hmm. and be fine with it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I'm the one who's controlling the story. Yeah. Or is the, the story thing. controlling you? No, I'm controlling the story. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's the, the other, I feel like the other aspect of this that is probably unique to you and your own fears. And Jess is really on the couch here today. Um, <laughs> no kidding. Is uh, it, it's about rules. Right, who's making the rules? Who's determining what's what's animating the thing? Absolutely. Right? The, with the Muppets, like you said, you have lore, you have history, you have shows, you have context. So there's rules. Same deal with American Girl dolls. There are a lot mm-hmm. of rules for those, right. for sure. There's a there's a degree to which they have significance, and they're not going to like act outside of that. Right, and there's a a a big point that's made in How to Sell a Haunted House from Mark and his extreme puppet collective Mm -hmm. about how puppets are like essentially violence transformed, right? They're, Mm -hmm. they're a way to allow chaos to reign supreme Mm -hmm. um, because they have, there's no boundaries to the control there or there's no, there's no limitations there to what they can do um, because they aren't physically human. But what we see with pumpkin is that that's not quite true. Right. Okay, so Joseph, you brought up the rules, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, when it comes to horror fiction or just horror movies in general, um, and I've always been like this, but I like to understand the rules of the universe, right? Sure. In which I'm either reading about or watching. How does it all work? Um, for instance, like vampires, mm-hmm. you know, vampires can't come out in the sun. Vampires can't come into your house unless you invite them in. There's all these different rules. Same they don't with like, like garlic. They don't like garlic. It de- well, it depends on which what movie you do you're watching. What do you do if you have an Italian vampire? Oh. Oh. Are they Italian? I guess they're from like Transylvania, huh? Yeah. yeah. All right. That'd be sad for them. Bummer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, but anyways, yeah. So I like to understand the rules. For me, I think the rules of how to sell a haunted house, some of the stuff works, some of it doesn't. Right? So you've got pumpkin the evil demonic possessed puppet that will take control of you if you put him on your hand right, right. and he c- takes over your mind he controls every aspect of you your he controls your speech whatever you say i can accept that that's fine uh there's a later point in the book where um louise and mark think that they have you know destroyed pumpkin Pumpkin, sorry, I, I want to throw an M in there when I say that's it. fair because mm-hmm. I mean generally we say the word pumpkin a lot yeah. more than we do pumpkin. Yeah, yeah, pumpkin. She goes back home to San Francisco, and to find that her daughter has um, pumpkin on her hand. She made it with her grandmother. I had a, 
a very minimal moment there where I was like, did pumpkin fly? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What? Okay. I had to suspend my disbelief there for a second. I'm like, okay, how does that work into the rules of how this is all working out, you know? Right. Um, But it was fine. Uh, did that happen before or after Spider came in? Do y'all remember? After. That can't happen after appears. Spider. Okay, so before that, there's a, another character we're introduced to named Spider, which is an imaginary six-legged blue dog, which was Mark's Imagine. imaginary best friend when he was a child. That The family all kind of like pretended was there too. Yes. Like mm-hmm. the mom would open the door for, for spider to get out of the car yeah. and they would buy dog food and that kind of stuff for yeah. it. Like yeah. a little extreme on a little it. Extreme. Yeah. So there's a point in the book when, um, Louise and Mark are suddenly attacked by spider spider. Yeah. Like spider has manifested into reality and is now attacking Louise at the bidding of pumpkin. Right. That didn't work for me. And I'm trying to figure out why, you know, it's just because I was before, you know, Pupkin's actually made of, you know, cloth. He's made of materials, tangible stuff. Right. That makes sense. You know, he possesses you when you get put on it and you put him on in your hand. Spider is just an imaginary made up friend. But all of a sudden, Pumpkin has the powers, the magic just to create him out of thin air. How does that work? I I tell you what, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Right. I think it's fair, especially when we're talking about any type of speculative fiction. So horror, sci-fi, fantasy, superheroes, stuff that isn't like really, really real in our real world, not existing right meow, um, could happen. We're speculating on it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fair to say that if we're speculating on it, the rules have to work. You know, it's kind of like walking into Harry Potter and saying, well, everyone else uses a wand, but Sabrina, the teenage witch, shows up and starts casting verbal spells without yeah. a wand. Yeah. Suddenly it's like, what are the the laws of magic here? Right. And it's kind of, it's the same for horror. Like the, the magic that exists to make these things real, the through line has to be there and the rules have to exist and they have to be straightforward enough that your readers can understand or f- and follow because right. otherwise it takes you out of the story like right. it did for you. Yeah. Yeah. It has to make sense. Like, right. Nightmare on Elm Street. How does Freddy get you, Joseph? I know you've seen Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. It's like if, whenever you fall asleep. Whenever right? you fall asleep. Yeah. So just don't fall asleep yeah. and Freddy can't get you. Yeah. Right. Um, how does it stay? Like how, how do you keep Pupkin from possessing you? Mm-hmm. You don't put him on your hand, right? Right. So yeah. he can maybe still be a threat in other ways, but that's like the main threat is you don't want him on your hand. Right. But and all of a sudden there's something else to worry about. And he there's can, no way to stop it from happening. It's just yeah. like Pupkin says whenever spider comes, then spider just comes. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're bit by a werewolf. You know what's going to happen every time there's a full moon. Yes. Right. That yeah. kind of stuff. So it gets infected. I mean, there's, yeah, it gets infected and you get <laughs> rabies and you go to, you get some shots. Um, I guess that's the non-speculative version yeah. of it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of directions to go with this. I think that, you know, in terms of, in terms of what draws those two elements of the story, both Pupkin and Spider together is... I guess something that makes a certain amount of thematic sense, where is where that it's clear that one of the things that this book is about or is explore is using horror to explore 
is the way that sort of shared beliefs amongst a group of people can kind of create uh, another framework for reality. It's something that they can kind of agree upon. They allow the, they allow, you know, the family allows Mark to have his imaginary friend and they indulge him in that idea. And the children indulge their mother in using Pupkin to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and like you put another coin into the bank of the energy sure. of the imaginary thing. And the more money that's in the bank, the more real it can become. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the things that that's one of the things that's that threads those together. But, um, but what that then suggests is that the book itself kind of has a, or is attempting to have a, a kind of narrative logic that doesn't exactly fit with a lot of other, horror stuff that we might have encountered otherwise yeah right yeah. but then you know that at this talk about rules has me thinking you know in some ways that is a that's an undercurrent as we've kind of already been saying that's an undercurrent of of a lot of horror fiction in general not just that different threats whether we're talking vampires or demons or werewolves or whatever that they abide by a certain sense of rules, but actually that like some of the reasons why protagonists in horror narratives get themselves into a lot of trouble is because they violate the rules in right. some way. Yeah. Right. Well, I was going to mm-hmm. say because they're stupid. Well, yeah. Yeah. But, um, a lot of characters in horror are stupid. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, don't go into that room. Yes. Eh, don't say right. I'll be right back. Don't. Yeah. If don't never split the party. Don't go don't, in the basement. No, don't drink. Don't have sex. Don't, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Just stay home, knit. You know, <laughs> read books. Don't uh, bury your youngest son in the backyard. Uh, that's a good mm, one. You know, good yeah. move. <laughs> good move. <laughs> <laughs> which I think, I think brings us to the big topic of this book, which is that yes, it's funny. Yeah, there are puppets. Yeah, it's a hot mess. Like this family is bonkers. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the biggest thing about the story is the amount of generational trauma that yeah. Mark and Louise have to work their way through. Um, and it's clear that her parents had issues, especially her mom. And that leads back to her grandmother and the fact that Louise and Mark's mom, as it turned out, ab- abandoned her younger brother when he was five and he drowned in a pool and uh, Popkin is ultimately baby brother Freddy in a puppet. Mm-hmm. And um, they have to reckon with the fact that Freddy is not at rest. Nancy, his older sister, was always going to be around. And then Nancy wasn't around after the parents die um, in a car accident. And no one is there to take care of Popkin. And Popkin is a five-year-old boy and does not expect that that's going to be a thing that happens to him. And Louise and Mark have to unravel this enormous knot of family secrets in order mm-hmm. to figure out what's going on. In, what do you think about the way that Grady Hendrix addresses generational trauma? Do you feel like it makes it more accessible through horror? Do you feel like this was the right place to talk about something like that? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way that he does it. Yeah. Um, 
I liked it too. Period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the end. <laughs> yeah. I liked it too. I think that again, I reading reading is such a safe space for us to work through difficult subjects. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, the book's not going to the book's not going to talk back. I hope to God it doesn't talk back. Right. That would be another terrifying thing if the book started talking to you. Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Horrifying. Um but you know the the book is going to tell you the story and sometimes it reflects in you in different ways. And generational trauma is something that really as a society we haven't talked about very much. But it's something that goes back and goes back and goes back. And it's it's most evident in um, families that have come, have traveled through slavery and have lived in America since their their great, great, great ancestors were slaves. And we're starting to see it now as conversation with Vietnam. Um, we read a graphic memoir called The Best We Could Do. That was a great generational trauma family leaving Vietnam story. Mm-hmm. But to see it addressed through both a comic and scary way opens it up to really like you're already laughing, you're already terrified, and then it cracks open the ability to, I think, address other emotions at the same time because you're already in an emotional place, you know? And I really liked that balance that he struck. Yeah, and I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to as well. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got something, you know. Every family's got Every family's got something. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not got necessarily, attic. you know, some horrific trauma you experience, I mean, it can be as simple as, like, just the way your family communicates with each other, just the way y'all talk sure. to each other. Or don't talk. Or don't talk. And, yeah. and that shapes, like, how you perceive your own family and just kind of how the world works and how you talk to other people. I thought it was funny in the book, too, when Louise kept asking reassurance from, like, her brother, or even like her own in like internal dialogue, like because everyone around her, like her cousins, were saying, like, "Man, your family was weird," you know. Yeah, and, and she's, she's like, like we "Were we weird? weird? Were we weird?" Mm-hmm. You know, and right. it starts getting those, you know, her wheels spinning about that. Like, well, were we not like other families? You know, why why were we so weird? Mm-hmm. And then she starts thinking about, oh, well, oh right, well, there's that time that I almost killed my brother because I was possessed by a puppet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Popkin, why? Yeah, I think related to this and related to I don't know, sort of the rules of the novel and the way that that thematic interest in kind of investing in investing in some kind of shared belief makes that thing more tangible in some way. Whether we're talking the pup, whether we're talking pumpkin, whether we're talking spider, I think another facet of that in this book is you know sort of the role of family secrets for sure Mm -hmm. um and what's being concealed and then how what's how the things that can that are concealed come back to haunt you sure but then also kind of reform and reshape the reality around you there's just so much that isn't talked about and so much that becomes euphemism Mm -hmm. and other things like that i mean again that's another piece like you're saying derek that's another piece of this novel that's incredibly familiar uh to anyone that has uh tried to sort through things with their with their family and their family's mm-hmm. history yeah. oh yeah my family growing up we 
you know, we were a very, let's sweep it under the rug and just not talk about that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, and, sure. you know, and I don't know if that's a Southern thing or if it's something that, you know, people all across the world can relate no, to. No, I think yeah. it's, I feel like it's a generational thing. Yeah. Mm. Louise and Mark's parents are roughly the same age that my parents are. Same. And my parents yeah. and I think yours were mm-hmm. around the same age. Did they say and that the just, ages of the parents, like 70s? Is that about yeah, right? somewhere oh, yeah. in there. And that is, I mean, the, the baby boomer generation is definitely one where they were very much impacted by their parents and what their parents had to make do with when they had so little, especially during the Great Depression and that kind of stuff. And then it was, as they were growing up, it was very much about like aspirations, goals, success, all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And you were seen as weak if you did not succeed, if you had any issues, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that is just any sort of issue. We just don't talk about it and then it's not a problem. Yeah. Right. Except we all know it's a problem. Not talking about Pupkin (laughs) does not mean he's not in the attic. Like that's not how it works. Pupkin's still there. If anything, it makes it worse. Right. And so he's really a representative of that situation. And that is something that I think is very common right now that we're seeing and probably honestly something that Grady has been impacted by mm-hmm. or has seen writ large by his friends or other parts of his family, that kind of thing, because he writes it very authentically. Oh yeah. For oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's, one of the things that's really striking about this book, certainly the, um, the opening of the book is, um, the way that Grady writes about Louise's experience in the now like empty house of her parents and yeah. having to having to sort of deal with that, having to sort through those uh, sort through those things. And, and I don't know, it's um, it's just clear to me that uh, there's a real there's a, he's writing from a place of a real sympathy for the character yeah. um, and a real sense of a real sense of recognition of exactly how like fraught and vexing those kinds of situations can be when you know adult children inevitably find themselves um in them you know uh, after their parents go um and uh and so that was i don't know that was extremely striking to me yeah for sure like i think there was a a point about like laundry never being washed again or like a half full Mm -hmm. basket Mm -hmm. sure um and her dad's like one sock but then it turns out to be a squirrel yes <laughs> a oh. dead squirrel yeah. <laughs> oh yeah the squirrel nativity yeah uh, we forgot squirrel about the squirrel nativity, nativity. nativity. Yeah. that's another another one that's kind of like what How because it's work? a dead animal yeah. right. that has returned mm-hmm. yeah they are risen <laughs> i sure guess are. um so that's kind of curious so let's well, let's explain the squirrel nativity for those who haven't read yes, the book yet because that's please. Even I, I for imagine those, people hearing what squirrel nativity even for those who have read the book <laughs> yeah. the squirrel nativity is one of the most it's bizarre wacky things i've ever encountered in a book before and it's a nativity scene that louise and mark's mom has made out of taxidermied squirrels because she learns mm-hmm. to do taxidermy <laughs> and that's like her final project for her class it's good to have a craft yeah Yeah, it's good to have a hobby Uh, yeah every man needs a hobby just like just as is said in psycho right right before she's killed um and no one wants it so it lives like 
on top of a shelf in their living room forever and ever. And then it starts rotting eventually starts rotting. But at some point Louise is attacked by the reanimated squirrels. Yeah. And she gets like bitten by one and one is trying to get under the door and she smashes its head with like some sort of badminton racket or something. And um, it's just the most bizarre thing. Yeah. And at one point, the other the other like wild magical thing that happens at one point, Mark and Louise go back to the house for the final showdown with Popkin and every single doll including the squirrel nativity has returned to its rightful place in the household. Uh And there is something immensely disturbing about that. I mean, of course I was going to find it disturbing anyway. The walls are closing in with dolls, but that was, that was an especially claustrophobic moment and really Mm -hmm. gave you the feeling that like, Oh God, even the squirrel nativity made it back. (laughs) Like, Oh boy, (laughs) not a tuft of rotting hairs out of place. (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah. What have they gotten themselves into? Joseph, one thing we haven't gotten to talk about yet that Derek and I are very curious about is that earlier you texted us and said that you were going to talk a little bit about the religious puppetry aspect of this book. (laughs) And we would love to hear more about Uh, that. Okay. Uh, Well, so the angle that I, the angle that I was going to take with it, um, or the thing that I was going to suggest is um, kind of going into the going into the I guess the sort of psychology of of horror or thinking about horror texts as a way of considering other cultural concerns from a different angle. Let's say so. Uh, one of the reasons why um, something like puppets can be scary and can be creepy is uh this is going a little bit into what we were talking about with you a moment ago jess yeah (laughs) is that in some ways they they force us to confront the reality of a a different cultural expression than what we typically as westerners uh, would respond to inanimate things with, like we would see, we would see a statue, let's say a statue of a Buddha or even a crucifix or something like that, and we would recognize that these these are significant images, but we wouldn't we wouldn't always. And I say we. I say here. I mean just sort of the Western a Western view of things would not recognize those things as so holy as to partake in some larger like metaphysical reality. Right. Right. (laughs) So, you know, we're not looking at a crucifix and saying this is, this is like incarnated Christ. In some oh, way, I see. Like, right? not yeah. literally speaking. Not no, not literally speaking. Or we're right. looking at a statue of Krishna, and you know, this is not. It's symbolic. Th- yeah, this we there's a yeah there's a veil there. There's a layer of distance right. in how we approach those things. Well, 
I'm you're, walking with you. When okay. you're dealing with... We're there on the beach together. Yeah. Three sets of footprints. Great. <laughs> Soon it'll just be one. I'm carrying both yeah. of you. <laughs> You'll look um, back and Derek and I are running the other way. Yeah, please stop. Um, so, and this is an idea. This is not my, this is not my original idea. Um, this is something I'm taking from uh, the scholar Victoria Nelson. Um, Puppet queen. Who and. She actually has a book called The Secret Life of Puppets. See, she is puppet queen. And it is, um, it's essentially uh, her big argument in the book is um, that we find in uh, subcultural texts um, in the 20th century, you know, science fiction texts, horror, uh, fantasy as well, essentially re- expressions of a repressed religious dimension in some form. And so in your haunted puppet, evil doll type story, or even in your Android type story, mm-hmm. shout out Megan, shout out Megan, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. Megan and pumpkin. Let's put those two together. Yeah. They could really raise mm-hmm. some hell. That's what Megan two is going to be. About. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Megan two, Megan dates. Um, oh, God. yeah. Um, you know, in those types of stories, uh, you're, you're confronting this idea that matter, like inanimate matter can be insold in some kind of way. And then you're also confronting something like an idea of, of a human soul. And, it's not to say that, you know, we don't have plenty of people who believe in those kinds of things or, or accept those ideas, but they're often, they're pushed to the margins and they find their expression in these like genre texts in some kind of way. So this is Victoria Nelson's argument, or it's an aspect of her, of her argument. Um, because if we look at, uh, you know, prior periods in, human history um we see the handling of automata and puppetry and other things like that being expressed in a very different way um and handled in a very different way and often bound up with uh with religious expression in some form um i did not realize that christian puppet shows were a thing yeah. Turns out they are. They are. Um, yeah. Puppet ministry is definitely a thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Definitely. <laughs> Did not expl- like enter a corner of my mind until reading this book. I was like, oh, okay. I don't think I've ever That's- been to a puppet Bible story before. Bible story time. I love that one of one of her puppets was named Deuteronomy the Donkey. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I definitely have. But I've also... I've I feel like I went to, I have vague memories of going to a, like a children's theater festival numerous times. When yeah, I was did a you kid. go to the one that was the, were you in the elementary class that was in this book? <laughs> <laughs> the extreme puppet collective no, goes and no, just like. No, didn't get that wild. No. <laughs> Where the kids start running and screaming. Absolutely yeah. breaks their hearts. Turns into like an anti-war, like witnessing trauma yeah. show yeah. you would think that that would be what happened to me as a child the way i feel about puppets no <laughs> but no you just even. went to the ring i was Brothers just in Museum. a room for a little while yeah. with your parents enough. yeah with yeah. my parents <laughs> <laughs> that's all it took 
So, I mean, I don't know. That's my, that's, that's a take here is to say, you know, one of the things, one of the things that we're often dealing with in horror fiction and horror storytelling in, in some form is uh, a kind of repressed and uh, like culturally repressed and, um, and transfigured uh, religious dimension or religious urge. And in, in some ways, well, maybe prior to, prior to the emergence of a really popular like secondary or tertiary movie market that focuses on like expressions of a certain kind of Christianity. I'm thinking of the God's not dead movies and things like that. Aside from that, in some ways, uh, you know, horror films were like one of the places where you could actually hear a lot of religious conversation happening um, mm-hmm. yeah. when you're dealing with exorcism type stories. And, yeah, you know, for sure. And that sort of thing. Well, um, and we see that in here with Aunt Gail and her sure her God Squad who go out and clean up the demons, basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, because we see like the holy visage and the usage of all of that to try and clean out what's going on. That's where like, that's where it becomes almost house hunters with ghosts for me. Like if it had been like a, I almost wish this book had been a mockumentary following them. As mm-hmm. they were going from like house to house in a community and cleaning everything up, that would, be, that would have been really good. That would be, yeah, yeah. yeah. Grady Hendrix, that. if you're listening, <laughs> yeah, shout out. <laughs> yeah, it must be like horror store part two. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't know if that I don't know if that any of that tracks or or makes sense. Um, but uh, but that's a, it's a, a correlation. It's a way in, yeah. right? And I think it's interesting to think about from a perspective of like this book just didn't bloop out of nowhere and these ideas didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a really a rich backstory to them mm-hmm. and a concept that Grady Hendrix is playing with that goes much deeper than just like you can read it on the surface level, but you could also go and dig a lot deeper into so many of these topics that he's highlighting. And I think that's where the book really becomes a success is because it has such depth that can be explored within it. Mm. Definitely. And, and I think again, you know, it's a book that if you are, if you're thinking about the way that, uh, Grady Hendrix handles, he sort of handles this interweaving of family trauma and hauntings and, uh, you know, I don't know, sort of the question of, the question of humanity stifled at, you know, at a young age and other things like that. I mean, you could, you could place it alongside a, you know, a film like the Babadook that does sort of similar things with haunting and grief and, and even a sort of like childhood Mm -hmm. framing childhood narrative, uh, uh, story. But I think you could also place it alongside, you know, science fiction narratives about artificial intelligence, right? You could put it up yeah. there with after Yang or with Claire and the sun or other, um, you know, other titles like that where, where you're dealing with, you know, a younger, a younger character that is a robot or artificial intelligence or something. And sort of learning to be learning to be human in the world, learning to navigate the world. There's a, there's a shared sense of concerns there. 
All right. Now it's time for the Reader's Advisory Corner. It's back. Here we are. Here we are. It's time to discuss what we think that you should read, watch, or play next if you enjoyed How to Sell a Haunted House. Joseph, what do you have? Okay. So um, these are going to be recommendations that are explicitly not for Jess at all. Okay. Which means that if you like the idea of haunted marionettes and haunted dolls and that sort of thing and you want to go even deeper and really explore that in a way that is troubling then you should uh, check out these two uh, items that I'm going to recommend the first one is a uh, it's actually a collection of two like anthologies of short stories by this writer um, Thomas Ligotti He's a horror writer, and um, the two books are called Songs of a Dead Dreamer and, Gr- and Grim Scribe. And Ligotti is actually really interested in the idea of the puppet and the marionette from a somewhat similar philosophical perspective to the one that I was just walking out a minute ago, except for him, uh, the puppet and the marionette is horrifying that that's animated that comes to life is horrifying to the human because we ourselves, he would say we're confronted with the idea that maybe we, that's merely all that we are. Oh, oh yeah. So, uh, but Thomas Ligotti is a really stylish, um, experimental horror writer. And, um, I always recommend him to people that are looking looking past the the entry level work and want to want to go a little deeper. He's very influential uh, and uh, a real master of the horror short story. Um, and then the other the other title that I want to recommend is actually a collection of short films by the Quay Brothers. It's called Phantom Museums. And um, for all of you. Uh, late 90s early 2000s metal heads out there you might be familiar with um, a style of uh, stop motion animation that was heavily influenced by the quay brothers and that would be in the music videos of the band tool Um, Mm -hmm. if you ever saw any of those music videos um, then uh, you would recognize the way that the quay brothers um, work to create uh, some sort of unholy hybrid between broken dolls and little mechanical insects that uh kind of move around and uh and just creep you out and create nightmares for you um but sounds great we (laughs) but we own that in our collection as well um they're very interesting and they actually draw on uh a lot of like eastern european um uh, sort of speculative fiction traditions, uh, work by Kafka, work by Bruno Schultz and, and others. Um, so those are my two. Derek, what do you have? Oh, <laughs> hi, Derek. Hi. Derek. Um, so I have one book and a couple movies that okay. I could suggest. Let's do it. Okay. Solid. Yeah. Um, should I start with the, I'll start with the movies first. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have, we definitely have one of these in our collection. The other one you could watch on Tubi, okay? Shout out Tubi. Shout out Shouts Tubi. Shouts to Tubi. We love Tubi. So if you're into doll horror, uh-huh. puppet horror, stuff like that, I would recommend the 1987 movie Dolls, directed by Stuart Gordon, who is also the director of Reanimator and yes. From Beyond. Nice. Um, it's on Tubi. Um, the title pretty much gives it away what yeah. it's about. Dolls. Oh, you know? yeah. Um, cool. Another one, obviously Annabelle, which we have in our collection. Um, and the book I would recommend, 
It's one of my childhood favorites. Oh. It's Night of the Living Dummy by R.L. Stein. I'm surprised oh, yeah. it wasn't the yeah, Velveteen oh, yeah. Rabbit. Yeah. Oh, not that one. Not that one. Slappy. Slappy the Dummy. Yeah. yeah. Slappy the Dummy. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, Jess, what do you have? I have one book okay. that has oh. nothing to do with either of what you've highlighted. Great. I would it's Tess, love it? to highlight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Tess of the Durbervilles by Thomas Hart. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, it's Jim Henson, the biography by okay. Brian J. Wow. Jones. I actually recommend above all else listening to the audiobook, which is narrated by Kirby Hayborn. He does the voices of the Muppets and of the characters on Sesame Street when they are referenced in the book. And it is an incredible read. I That's listened great. to it. I mean, it's it's long. It's like know, 14 or 15 discs. Um, but it goes so deep into Jim Henson's life, how he came up with what he came up with. Um, it goes all the way from his birth to his funeral, which is one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever listened to, especially for a nonfiction book, mm. um, because his funeral is is quite similar to Nancy's funeral and how to sell mm. a haunted house. It's very colorful, very enthusiastic, very bright. Rainbow Connection is performed during his funeral as well, oh, and wow. Hayborn sings part of it in the audiobook, and it's just it's very affecting. Um, but it's a great read. I mean, uh, we all know who Jim Henson is, but there's so much to his life and so much to his story and his legacy. Um, and it's the first like full length biography ever to be written of him. And I don't know if anyone could ever do it any better, honestly. So yeah, I highly recommend reading that. And it has, um, I mean, it's still a sad ending, but certainly I know that these puppets aren't going to do anything bad to anybody in this book. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no. That's a good little curveball. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I was wondering when you were going to work in the Rainbow Connection reference. Yeah, I, I mean, it was going to happen eventually. I got it in there at the end. Right on the wire. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Book Lovers Podcast. All our titles are available in the Spartanburg County Public Library's collections via SpartanburgLibraries.org or on Tubi. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, or to learn more about us, check out our website, bookloverspodcast.squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. 